0: This is New Books in National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windisch. My guest, Van Jackson, wrote the new book, On the Brink, Trump, Kim, and the Threat of Nuclear War. Van Jackson is a senior lecturer in international relations at Victoria University of Wellington and a global fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. He also serves as the defense and strategy fellow at the Center for Strategic Studies. Van, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: How did you get interested in researching and writing about the Korean conflict?
1: So it's sort of so uh, I sort of ran away from home when I was 17 and I joined the Air Force and uh, I wanted to be James Bond. I didn't know what that took. But uh, when I went to the recruiter, he told me like, oh, if you uh, go, if you can Show aptitude for language, then we can bring you into the intelligence community as uh, something called a cryptologic linguist. And so I took the aptitude test. I did well on it. They slotted me in Korean based on needs at the time. This is like this is like 18 years ago, 19 years ago. And uh, from there, path dependence kind of set in. So on the Air Force's dime, they trained me in uh, the Korean language. And then I did a job as an intelligence analyst where I was like listening to Korean stuff and translating it all the time. And uh, I lived in Korea for a while and then I was going to school at night and uh, what I was finding myself interested in studying, like Asian studies, international relations and history, all of that complemented what I was doing in my day job. Uh, And then one thing built on the other and one thing led to another. And before you know it, you know, I'm... I'm into, you know, Korean studies one way or another for 18 straight years. So that was sort of how I ended up with this.
0: And the book title, it really centers around the current players in the conflict. But you make the argument that the 2017 nuclear crisis occurred from a gradual hardening of U.S. policy towards North Korea. The book starts with some of that history. Can you talk a little bit about the Korean War and how that conflict's ending began? Some of the issues we see reoccur over time?
1: Yeah. So everything that happened in 2017, which all this fire and fury and, you know, like we literally got taken to the brink of nuclear war, uh, more so even than I think a lot of people realize until, of course, they read the book. But... uh, the North Koreans have really, really long memories, and the the regime has gotten a lot of mileage. The North Kim Jong Un regime has gotten a lot of mileage out of uh, the the sort of the narrative that they've reified over time about the mass bombings and torture and the atrocities that you know American GIs committed during the Korean War. In the North Korean telling of the Korean War, they didn't invade the South. The South invaded them. The Americans invaded them. Um, this is, of course, not true. So there's a mixture of, of propaganda and lies with truth. And uh, you know, the American prosecution of the Korean War was brutal. Uh, there were a lot of atrocities. And so this this mix of truth and lie has become part of like the stock narrative that has reinforced. Uh, A North Korean way of being that is sort of very mistrustful, uh, very hostile toward uh, the United States. The United States is sort of the preeminent major outside adversary, not the only one. And uh, it has justified, especially the use of nuclear threats during the Korean War, it has justified North Korea's pursuit of nuclear weapons themselves. And so that there's this long historical arc for North Korea pursuing nuclear weapons. It's invested a lot to get here over time. It's endured a lot to get to the level that it has on the nuclear side. Um, and the U S has been entrenched in a, you know, obviously a very contrary position, a zero tolerance position about North Korean nukes and our position sort of in the policy world reified over time, Um, And we got locked into this notion that like we cannot tolerate nuclear weapons um, and our policies held to that line. But at the same time, our actions didn't materially stop North Korea from getting this thing. So the U.S. had this sort of long running mismatch between ends and means in our North Korea policy. Like we didn't want North Korea to have nukes and we were very adamant about that. But we weren't really willing to do what it would take to stop them because North Korea was dead set on it. So you have this real conflict of interest about North Korean nukes. And that conflict of interest makes a crisis almost inevitable Um, at some point. It was just a question of when this thing was going to come to a head. Goals are completely contradictory to one another, the U.S. and North Korea. And so it was just a matter of time before everything blew up. And it just so happened this converged with a period in time where you have a millennial running North Korea and Kim Jong-un. And you have, of all people, Donald Trump as president in the United States. So they both inherited this this horrible situation that was where crisis was sort of overdetermined.
0: And you pick up the story of – where these things start to happen in a modern in a modern sense after the cold the end of the cold war rather. And you talk about what happened in nineteen ninety-three, ninety-four during the Clinton administration and what mm-hmm. happened there. Um can you discuss a little bit about what happened in that particular instance and some of the the goals of the administration towards North Korea at that time?
1: Yeah so You know, the end of the Cold War was this, the unipolar moment, right, in American uh, foreign policy discourse. So the Americans had no great adversary after the demise of the Soviet Union. China had not yet risen up to sort of replace the Soviet Union. And so the American national security establishment ended up focusing all of its energies and its force structure and its strategic thinking in... um, well, a couple things like military operations other than war, humanitarian stuff, but primarily in non-proliferation, and so that became the top national security issue in the early Clinton administration, and that just so happened to coincide with North Korea breaking out. So Kim Jong Un's grandfather, Kim Il Sung, breaking out in its new its nuclear capability for real. Or pursuing it earnestly, openly, um, because the end of the Cold War meant the demise of an, of an ally with the Soviet Union, a patron. And at the same time, l- literally with the end of the Cold War in that same like two-year time span, China new- normalized relations with South Korea, who's North Korea's enemy at the time. And so geopolitically, North Korea is now officially isolated. There is no communist bloc. There is no Soviet Union. China has normalized relations with its enemy and the United States, they still have this fear, this ongoing fear of like an invasion from the U S even though that seems crazy to us, it's like very real to them. And so there's this strong geopolitical imperative to counterbalance this or offset this. And so Kim Il-sung had been investing in nukes all along, but it had been very latent quiet. Um, And then in the early nineties, he starts to make a dash for nuclear weapons. And uh, it, like I said, the U.S. strategic priority at that moment was nuclear nonproliferation. So you have this convergence, and that convergence leads to the first North Korean nuclear crisis between 1993 and 1994. And um, ultimately, that got resolved, you know, frankly, by luck. Um, we were on a collision course with North Korea, and uh, Jimmy Carter sort of, you know, on his own volition, went to North Korea, met with Kim Il-sung and kind of hammered out a a framework for a deal that the Clinton administration would then follow through. Uh, And we had a period of sort of like quiet stability, detente with North Korea, intermittent negotiations with North Korea throughout the rest of the 1990s. So like that was sort of the Clinton era, what happened with North Korea.
0: And it was interesting, you mentioned um, just a difference between goals on the U.S. side of those who wanted kind of uh, an airing of of truth about what North Korea's activities actually were versus those who cared more just about stopping progress towards nuclear weapons. Um, it seems that there was an approach that was kind of established at this time to work with North Korea and the nuclear issue very much as is an issue of of compliance or a compliance exercise. But as you mentioned, you say the goals of the U.S. and North Korea were so di- were so different that this strategy was never going to work. Can you talk a little bit about the the tension within the U.S. on different goals towards North Korea and how how that comes to a head?
1: Yeah. So there was this this huge internal battle in the U.S. between Uh, like I think the framing was like deterrence advocates versus arms controllers. And it sounds, uh, you know, like almost like a a boring difference, like who would care, but the deterrence guys were in the Pentagon and they just cared about sort of stop cutting off the threat. And so they need, they wanted to stop the nuclear program from proceeding. They wanted to stop North Korea from ever getting nuclear armed missiles. Boom. That's it. Um, the arms controllers, ironically, because that's usually the more sort of dovish position, the arms controllers, largely at the State Department and at the NSC, they were focused much more on getting a full accountability of what North Korea had done. Um, they had in mind like the larger nuclear nonproliferation treaty and maintaining a nonproliferation regime and the international you know, nuclear taboo. And so they had these like big grand non-proliferation objectives that required deep like deep verification north korea needed to open its kimono totally Um, be uh, like be completely transparent about all of its nuclear activity in the past and that was that was just flies in the face of like anything any state that cares about like saving face would do uh, especially north korea but on, you know, on top of that, even, even the, the Pentagon's goal of just cutting off the program at its knees, even that seems to be maybe too much. Like North Korea wanted had no reason to really trust America long term. So they were going to always kind of – or my, my interpretation of the history at least is that North Korea was always going to hedge against whatever agreements it signed with the U.S. by sort of cheating just enough, cheating a little bit keeping some nuclear facilities, you know, off the declared inventory list and continuing to have some latent nuclear capacity, even when it's, you know, working through nuclear diplomacy and total disarmament. Um, there, there wasn't enough trust to expect that North Korea wouldn't cheat, basically. Um, and ultimately, anyways, the arms controller, the maximalist position, sort of won out within the U.S. interagency debates. Um, and, but it, it didn't really matter because, you know, the, the crisis to end just needed diplomacy to keep going. And that's sort of what we got, but also we never fully resolved, um, the, the, the full disposition of North Korea's nuclear weapons. It turned out they were cheating in a sense because they were developing a uranium enrichment pathway to the bomb. Um, and the, the agreement that they reached in 1994 only covered plutonium technically. So it's like this, this legal loophole kind of thing where North Korea could claim that it wasn't violating the agreed framework, the deal from 1994, even though it was.
0: And some of the topics that you mentioned about North Korean thinking, I think it's really valuable to mention the chapter on North Korean strategic thought. Can you talk a little bit about the North Korean theory of victory that you lay out there?
1: Yeah, so one of the, this this actually draws on my first book, which was about sort of crisis bargaining between the U.S. and North Korea. But one of the things that I've, I've observed in the historical arc of North Korean behavior, especially with the U.S., is that their foreign policy decisions seem to be predicated, at least partly, on what they expect how they expect us to react which is sensible you always make policy based on how you expect the other side to react but they expect us to react disproportionately relative to what they do so we would, we refer to that as like reputation right when they take a small action in the present they expect it to have an outsized effect in the future and so and we this is a consistent pattern from the 1960s literally up through 2017 it's it's like batting a thousand this 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 accounts for basically all north korean provocations over time it's like a very powerful theory um and the the argument is basically that like north korea north korea believes that it has to go on the offensive even in small ways generate friction with your adversary in order to prevent your adversary from transgressing you. So they believe that the – and this is – like I I point to a lot of different evidence for this. North Korea believes that the reason the U.S. hasn't invaded them is that they have shown their willingness to go to the brink. They've shown that they're tough. They they actively court friction. They occasionally kill people, firefights along the demilitarized zone. All of this stuff cumulatively – this this toughness this perception of like willingness to do battle they believe that that cumulatively is what prevents that's what keeps them safe that's what prevents invasion so they think that deterrence comes from showing friction and offense even in small ways over time and the the, obvi- the opposite of that is the more like frightening implication which is that they believe if they back down or show restraint when they get hit, that there's a the moral hazard is so great that they they believe that showing weakness in that way in not retaliating if they get hit will lead to war anyway. But it will lead to war on terms that are favorable to the enemy. So what they believe is that if they get hit, they have to hit back always. Full stop, period. So if we bloody nose them, they have to hit back. And that's it. And that doesn't mean that we can never, uh, you know, kill North Koreans or hit them or whatever. But the context matters. And if we hit them first, they have to respond. And if we hit them second, like we're retaliating, there's a possi- I mean there's a 100% in war. But like there's a possibility at least that North Korea will back down if it's proportional. If we re- so we can hit them in retaliation if it's quick – If it's obviously in self-defense, if it's proportional, if we're not going after things that are strategic, like their early warning radars or their, you know, bases or something. And so this, there's a, this is a kind of like a nuanced argument, but basically what this means is the, the, the beliefs that North Korea has about how coercion works and why they haven't been invaded means that we can never hit, we can almost never hit them first without expecting them to retaliate. Um, but we, under certain conditions, we can hit them second, like if they hit us first or if they hit South Korea first. Um, so this has huge implications for policy, um, and it's it's neither an openly hawkish or openly dovish kind of position, but it's based on the history.
0: Well, and how does that strategic thought change the calculus of – nuclear policy, especially given some of the technological advances and the mobility of weapons that that you describe that have been happening in North Korea?
1: Yeah, so, so this is like sort of uncharted territory within the community of experts. Like I'm sort of writing, I'm one of the first people to write about this, but I believe that we have to understand North Korea's, how North Korea thinks about nuclear weapons, is embedded within how it thinks about coercion and the use of force generally. So, under the, the the starting point, if you want to understand how nuclear weapons, you know, can affect the situation or how North Korea might use nuclear weapons, the starting point is to understand how it thinks about coercion and force generally. Which is why this whole theory of victory matters. This whole, you know, offense is the best defense view matters, um, and then in that context. North Korea has nuclear weapons, so it has the ultimate deterrent. Um, and there are a bunch of different ways that intermingling nukes with this sort of offensive view of, of deterrence and coercion creates a very combustible situation. Um, the, 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 the simplest way to explain it is like, if you imagine walking on a, a balance beam that's one foot above the ground, you can do it no problem, right? The task is the task, and it's not a big deal. But if you took that same balance beam and the same task of walking across, but you, but you put the balance beam 1,000 feet in the air, the task is the exact same, like the exact same. But by elevating the stakes of what's involved in failure, you distort everything. So the objective task is still is, is unchanged, the circumstances are unchanged except maybe for like – control for wind, you know. But the fact that you know that failure will destroy you, the fact that you know that you're like looking down and the psychology – like all of your objectivity becomes warped when you elevate the stakes of something. And so the presence of nuclear – what the situation in Korea was already dangerous. Introducing nukes elevates the stakes dramatically. And it does so mostly for the U.S., which is why it's for North Korea it's a no-brainer to have nukes, because this whole standoff with the U.S. for 70 years, it's been an existential standoff for North Korea, but it's been a local problem for America. And the presence of nukes creates that 1,000-foot balance beam problem for America, and that is only to North Korea's advantage, um, as long as there's no actual nuclear war. Um, you know, nuclear war is lose-lose. But for North Korea, they were on the losing end of any kind of interaction anyway. So why not have nukes? And for the U.S., now every all of our objectivity is warped because of the presence of nukes. The idea that any conflict now could mean a mushroom cloud over U.S. cities, that possibility is now on the table. So now we have to change how we go about coercing North Korea, we have to rethink our goals, uh, North Korea policy, Um, we haven't quite done that yet. And the fact that we hadn't done that yet, actually was one of the things that fueled the crisis in 2017. Like, our policy had not caught up to the reality of where North Korea was.
0: Yeah, and talking about that, you give some examples of um, of, uh, Pakistan as another nation with Nuclear weapons in a asymmetric kind of situation. Do you see some of the lessons we're learning from North Korea and some of these other um, asymmetrical conflicts as having a kind of a global implication on international relations?
1: Yeah. So uh, a buddy of mine is a professor at MIT, and he wrote he wrote this huge book on nuclear strategy uh, a few years ago, Vipin Narang, and. His argument – he didn't really look at North Korea, but his argument was that small small nuclear states with small inventories – so you've only got a few nuclear warheads – and conventional military inferiority – so you've got an, an enemy somewhere out there in the world who has a conventional military that's that's better than yours. States in those positions are primed to adopt nuclear first-use strategies. Which means that early in a conflict or early in a crisis, you have to use nukes for the sake of like, it's your best chance at coercion to work. It's your best chance at stopping a conflict from escalating. So that's what Pakistan is. Um, and Pakistan has overtly uh, nuclear first use doctrine against India. And it's because India has this superior conventional military military. Uh, The the nuclear balance favors India. Pakistan doesn't have a secure second strike nuclear capability. So it adopts this uh, asymmetric escalation strategy, a first use strategy. And the hope for Pakistan is if you go big early, you scare the bejesus out of India so that then they'll sue for peace or stand down or whatever. Um, And so that logic structurally describes North Korea's situation, too right? The South Korean military is qualitatively superior plus us forces are obviously quantitatively and qualitatively superior when you combine us with South Korea and North Korea doesn't have a secure second strike capability. It does have a few nuclear warheads. So the most dangerous situation is one in which you've got a nuclear state that's barely a nuclear state. So like, and, and it, having so few warheads actually encourages whoever it is, North Korea included to pursue a first use nuclear doctrine. And so that's, we don't know a lot. We don't know a lot about North Korean nuclear doctrine, but we expect that based on the logic of the situation and the, the comparative analogy that North Korea probably does have this asymmetric escalation doctrine, um, Even if they haven't thought it through, this is how the logic of the situation would encourage them to use nukes. Um, And so that was one of the fears in 2017 was that like regardless of what their formal doctrine on paper was, the structure of the situation was pressuring them toward first use in a conflict or a crisis. Um, And fortunately, we didn't have to we didn't have to test that. But that's one of the concerns is that North Korea on paper looks a lot like Pakistan and Pakistan has a first use doctrine.
0: So jumping back into the to the narrative, the Clinton administration kind of gave us this compliance structure and um those different aspects of the of the North Korean relationship. The Bush administration uh, we saw North Korea described as the axis of evil, and then we see former President Clinton going back to to negotiate for the release of um, of some people what What are the key takeaways from the George W. Bush administration that kind of led into the Obama years
1: yeah, so the community of like Korea watching experts disagrees about this point but the 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 majority opinion is that or the you know, history best substantiates the claim that Kim Jong il, the Kim Jong-un's dad, decided to go all in on nukes for sure, locked un un unyielding on the nuclear path with the access of evil speech. Um some people say that's like uh, it's. that's too much like you're putting too much blame on bush or whatever um but what what kim jong-il told clinton when clinton visited pyongyang in 2009 was precisely that um and so maybe he's playing clinton maybe he's like appealing to clinton's ego like oh things were so much better between the u.s and north korea when you were president um So it's hard to like know how to interpret the history and depending on your political biases, like you'll have one opinion or another. But like the majority of experts think that by the time the Bush administration took this openly sort of antagonistic posture toward North Korea, North Korea sort of said like, "Okay, F you, we can't trust you even if we can deal with one of you guys as president. You, eventually you're, you're a democracy. So there's going to be another one that comes in. We can't rely on that. We're not going to make our existence as a nation susceptible to the whims of your democracy. So therefore, we've got to have nukes no matter what. And that's the strategic logic. And so that that happens for sure in 2002, 2003. The debate is whether North. that was North Korea's view all along. So the Clinton... Clinton advocates, Clinton school, people who worked in the Clinton administration, they believed they, had, they were close to getting North Korea to like basically fully give up nukes forever and the program. Um, and they thought if they had a little more time on the clock in the administration, they could have got there. And the Bush administration like sort of poisoned the well. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of Bush people will tell you like, no, North Korea always was going to get nukes. The logic of the situation is what it is. They were cheating in the Clinton administration anyway, so this was going to happen. We were naive for thinking that it ever wasn't going to happen. And so, like, those are sort of two very different schools of thought. And it's really about the historiography. When do you date North Korea's intention to go all in on nukes, right? Is it Axis of Evil and around that time, or was it, you know, the 1950s and they were, you know, Plotting this all along, and so just there's a it's it's open to interpretation, I guess.
0: Well, in your chapter on the Obama years, um, it's very forthright. And having served in that administration, what did right. you think was important to convey about that that period of time, which immediately um, comes before this this 2017 uh, crisis?
1: So one of the things that really upset me. So, yeah, I worked in the Obama administration on North Korea, of all things. And I was – I was I've, as a scholar, I've been very upset that there is no history of Obama's North Korea policy anywhere. Nobody's – so in the Clinton era, you had a bunch of books by former administration officials. Uh, so you had a lot of memoirs and stuff like that. Bush administration, it was the same. In the Bush administration, you had former officials writing memoirs about their North Korea policy while Bush was still in office and you had nothing of the sort with the Obama administration. It was, it's eight years of a black hole. And like, it's, it's really bizarre, but not a single former official in Obama, in the Obama team has written a a book about the North Korea stuff. Um, and so my, my book is the first, it's not about Obama's North Korea policy, but it's the first to address it in any kind of meaningful detail. Um, And what, what I've found, you know, I have to be careful how I write about it since I worked on it. But like what I found and what I know from my own experience was that the Obama administration locked in, they basically inherited the Bush position and made it their own. So the goal is denuclearization. And It was full denuclearization, which had the abbreviation CVID, comprehensive, verifiable, irreversible dismantlement. So that became the the mantra of the Obama administration. It's zero tolerance. It's what Bush had, right? Um, And politically, that prevented Obama from getting too much criticism from the Bush team because it's like, look, we got the same goal you've got. Um, And critically, and this was was the the big poison pill – The Obama team decided that the six-party talks, which was the negotiating structure that the Bush administration used for nuclear diplomacy with North Korea, the Obama team inherited that six-party talks talking point as the way of resolving the North Korean nuclear issue. So so Obama relied on the same ends and means um, for North Korea policy as the Bush team did. And what really screwed us was that our expectation, we came in expecting to be able to achieve much more with North Korea simply because we were different from Bush. We thought we were different. We thought maybe better. I don't know. We thought that we we had much more goodwill and that we weren't going to like mock you or label you axis of evil or we weren't going to be openly antagonistic towards you. We 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 thought – just by meeting and having good faith diplomacy, that everything would change. And what Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un's dad, saw from us was that our behavior and our policy was unchanged, which is true. He didn't care about our attitudinal difference compared to Bush. He cared only about whether we were going to uh, give him something that he wanted, or whether we were going to change or alleviate our policy toward him in a way that would like accommodate his his existence and the presence of nukes more. Um, and so he saw no change in the Obama era policy from Bush. And so he pursued nukes, uh, just the same. And then, you know, he dies while during Obama's first term. And then Kim Jong Un comes to office and we have no idea how that's going to affect, um, all this nuclear stuff at first. We don't even know if he's a reformer or what he's like, we don't know much about Kim Jong Un at this point. And then, uh, you know, the rest is history, I guess.
0: So there's a quote in the book that I think is really telling about how the U.S. looked at relations with North Korea as part of a larger whole and um, how this issue may have come to a head. Um, You say, for the United States, the problem with North Korea was as much a means of making progress in other regional relationships, especially with South Korea and China, as it was something to be resolved in its own right can you talk yeah. a little bit about that
1: yeah um and th- i mean this this reflects my own my own time working in the pentagon too frankly the evolution of my my 5 years there the the north korea issue was subordinate to or it, you know it forced to be compatible with the larger regional strategy the pivot to asia the rebalance to asia and so there's a lot that goes into this, but because the U.S. was in this massive economic recession, and Obama came to office, there was all these questions about American grand strategy coming up about like what what's our place in the world? You know, they, this recession is hitting us so hard. Maybe this is going to change international relations as we as we know it, right? And that context, in that context, the entire you know foreign policy establishment and Obama himself was like look we're not going to sully american greatness because of you know mortgage problems and so um or, and so he decided that ultimately we were going to focus on asia as a strategic priority long term and in asia the us military presence has been a stabilizing factor and it's been one of the reasons why asia has been allowed to develop economically so dramatically in the last 50 years so he decided to double down on the commitment to stability and predictability of the U.S. and Asia. Like, we're not going anywhere. We're a resident Pacific power. That became the talking point. And that necessarily meant that you have to sustain your alliance system in the Asia-Pacific. So, and you know, foremost among the allies in Asia is South Korea and Japan, both of which are subject to the threat from a nuclear North Korea. And in South Korea in particular, you had a conservative government the entire time. And that conservative government had very aggressive tendencies toward North Korea, very partly because of South Korean politics, but they, they were ready to sort of you know, attack North Korea. And so the priority of both living up to this pivot to Asia rhetoric and the priority of keeping allies on board and, in fact, restraining your South Korean ally from attacking North Korea, all of that suggested that, A, you had to do basically whatever South Korea wanted to keep them happy, and B, you had to make sure that you were reinforcing this larger regional strategy. And North Korea became an object of cooperation between the U.S. and China, and getting China getting China right or working with China productively was a major priority for the regional strategy um, because China was first among everybody in Asia to have a problem or have a beef with the continuing U.S. military presence in the Asia-Pacific. So the need to like get on well with China and the need to basically appease South Korea and sustain your alliance network these things became the drivers of North Korea policy. And there was uh, – starting with like 2012, there was this great cynicism that you could even achieve anything with North Korea anyway. North Korea is what it is. It's an outlier problem. So you might as well use the North Korea situation to strengthen alliance relationships, to encourage Japan and South Korea to work together when you know historically they kind of hate each other, to work well with China, prevent a you know, a competition narrative from setting in about the U S and China. So, um, there's a lot to say like, of, of reservations about a lot of that stuff, but that, that is, those are the facts. Like that's what happened. And all of that stuff, the regional strategy, keeping alliances together, working with China took precedence over actually trying to get North Korea to do something meaningful about its nukes.
0: Now, and having seen firsthand how North Korea responded to the election of President Obama, how did how did it differ uh, when President Trump was elected? How did you see North Korea react to the change in leadership there?
1: So, pretty much every administration since the end of the Cold War, North Korea waits out the prior administration. They find ways to stall and then they, they sort of probe the intentions of the new administration. And this has happened from Bush to Clinton, back to Bush, from Bush to Obama, and then it, the same thing happened with Obama to Trump. So Obama, at, in that final year of the Obama administration, we were ratcheting pressure on North Korea like crazy. Economic sanctions, targeting uh, Kim Jong-un by name for the first time ever targeting regime elites, going after them individually. Um, we were really tightening the screws. And then militarily, we were, we were reinforcing our presence and sending nuclear bombers and nuclear submarines, um, all these like assassination game plans for Kim Jong-un that South Korea kept advertising. And so that's the situation Trump inherited. But at the very end of the administration, um, there was an attempt between North Korean diplomats and the Obama administration and some NGOs who do like track two diplomatic engagement stuff with North Korea to try and have basically resume talks or get talks going again. And Kim Jong-un was not interested in dealing with the Obama administration, but he was allowing his diplomats to work behind the scenes to set up diplomacy possibly with the Trump administration. Once it was clear Trump was going to be president, And, um, that, that involved approving North Korean visas to come to New York for track two discussions, informal diplomacy with you at, with the U S and that was happening in like November, December, 2016 into January, 2017. And you remember, of course, January 20th inauguration. And so that's all. So we all think Trump is this wild card and, you know, we, we take for granted that he talks all this fire and fury trash. But in the very beginning of the administration, by default, his his diplomats were sort of facilitating North Korean diplomats coming so they can start nuclear talks. Would these nuclear talks go anywhere? Like, probably not. But they were a way of North Korea probing the U.S. position of a new administration. Um, and it's it's favorable certainly to like – you know, having North Korea testing missiles. But then in February, so like literally only a couple weeks after Trump's in office, North Korea decides that they are going to test a missile because they're not seeing anything good out of the Trump administration. And that becomes, you know, it's the first time that it happens on Trump's watch. And so it takes on outsized meaning. And then on top of that, um, Kim Jong-un has his, older half-brother Kim Jong-nam assassinated in a major international airport with a banned nerve agent. He had – it's a ridiculous, ridiculous situation where he – North Korean agents hired two unsuspecting women locals in Malaysia to wipe a VX nerve agent on uh, Kim Jong-nam's face in public in broad daylight and it kills him in a matter of minutes. And, like, it's on CCTV footage. It's this crazy provocative thing. And it has to do with the court politics inside North Korea mostly. But it has the consequence of shutting down preemptively diplomacy between the U.S. and North Korea. And what you end up having is, like, from that moment on, the National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster, Trump, um, a lot of the people in Trump's administration adopt the talking point. That Kim Jong Un is crazy, that he's irrational, that he can't be trusted with nukes, um, and that becomes the drive for maximum pressure and the fuel for the crisis. It like it increases the urgency of like, oh man, we cannot let this guy get nukes because he's so crazy. He uses a weapon of mass destruction in an international airport. Like this cannot, he cannot be trusted with nukes, um, and so. There was this attempt to probe early on, but because of circumstances, um, everything got shut down before it even started.
0: And then the book really goes into the recent history of this, um, as you call it, the 2017 crisis. But there's so many different parts to this, from um, what happened with the Olympics and the um, the false alert in Hawaii the uh American yeah. student um it's just jam- I mean even though it didn't happen that long ago it's just so much activity that's kind of jammed packed together um we've seen it kind of slow down even after the the big summit even though that had kind of fits and starts what are what are the main takeaways from from how that all boiled up to kind of ahead and and what we're seeing now with
1: um with uh activity yeah i mean so this is this is history that we all lived through but like it really does feel like it was a long time ago already because of like so much happens and so much information comes at us every day now um but basically my argument is that we the shorthand is we got lucky in early 2018 um and we we got lucky because kim jong-un crossed a sort of no return nuclear threshold before we could use force to stop him. And that's what we were building toward, was using force to stop him. But on November 28th, 2017, he successfully tests an ICBM, a missile that's capable of reaching Washington, D.C., and then he declares mission accomplished. And they put put the test on postage stamps and they sell it to tourists in Pyongyang, like I have them in my office. It's a big deal. That was the threshold they were looking to cross, and they crossed it. And literally within one month of that test – so in the U.S., we're still building toward bloody nose. We're still building on. – we're still on the path to war basically. But one month after that test, Kim Jong-un says, look, I've got what I need. The U.S. is never going to mess with us now. It's this public New Year's Day speech, you know. Um, The nuclear button is on my desk at all times. And then boom, boom, boom in the speech, he then turns and says, and by the way, we know that South Korea is hosting the Winter Olympics this year. We think this is an auspicious year for us and for the Korean peninsula. It would be great if South Korea could cancel military exercises um, and stop being hostile and make the right choice and respond to our diplomatic overture. And you have a progressive administration in South Korea who wanted to do precisely that. So Kim Jong-un turned 19, 19, 2018 into this year of diplomacy. And he worked with South Korea to completely mute the fire and fury, bloody nose talk, to completely outmaneuver Washington fully and take the initiative. And so not only did Kim Jong-un manage to end the crisis and get the nuclear – the minimally viable nuclear deterrent that he wanted, but he was able to launch this global uh, diplomatic charm offensive that ended up um, scoring him summits with Xi Jinping, with South Korea's President Moon, and then of course with Trump. And so this was a glo- the, the the stuff that we saw in the US has mostly been the Trump Kim summit. It's important to recognize like that's just one piece of a larger global diplomatic outreach campaign that Kim Jong Un launched and he launched it only because he sort of had mission accomplished on the nuclear side. So now he's trying to present himself as a fait accompli nuclear state saying like look we're a responsible nation yeah, we have nukes, our nukes are bad. Everybody knows nukes are bad. But um, look, we're going to be responsible with them just like the other NPT nations. And so let's talk about diplomacy and the future and economic development. And that was his design. He had told us that's what his strategy was going to be. And we tried to thwart him and we failed. And he's sort of executing his game plan. And so now, and so like Kim Jong-un has driven this train And we just got lucky that all of the near misses and false positive events and like close calls of 2017 never, never materialized into anything. Because there were a lot of opportunities for like catastrophe that didn't actually happen. Um, And now, unless Trump is completely irrational, it's too late. Like the cat, the the horse has left the barn. North Korea has the nuclear capability it, it needs, it wants. Um, and the question is, where do we go from here?
0: And it sounds like Trump got a letter recently.
1: Yeah, that's a whole, that's a whole other problem. Um, ba- so <laughs> this, I even I did not anticipate this, but Kim Jong-un and North Korea have adapted their strategy to exploit the, the fact that Trump is so anomalous relative to everybody else in America, everybody else in Washington. So they have uh, – we never expected we, – we expected that Kim Jong-un would launch diplomacy, a charm offensive. We saw this coming once they got a good enough nuclear capability. And he told us that was coming. So that's why we know. But we did not expect that he would try to insert a wedge between Trump and his own administration. So what's been happening is that Kim Jong-un sends these lovely letters to Trump, appealing to his ego, appealing to his deal-making savvy. Oh, only me and you can resolve this thing, blah, blah, blah. And so he's getting these personal letters, stroking his ego, and at the same time, North Korean diplomats are sort of refusing to meet with American diplomats. They're refusing to have nuclear negotiations of any kind. Uh, their propaganda stations are 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 attacking the US and saying Trump's team is betraying him behind his back and only like they're reinforcing this this wedge and they're they're doing it because you know Trump is playing the role of the useful idiot and like I'm not saying that to criticize Trump I mean it is Trump I guess but like it's the fact that he can be manipulated by flattery and he can be peeled off from the dominant position from the national interest in this case Um, and he can be convinced into adopting possibly the adversary's preferences as his own like we saw hints of this in the Singapore summit in June last year he started adopting the language that North Korea uses to characterize the U.S. to characterize the U.S. and like that's unheard of. And in the meantime, we've gotten nothing out of any of this. North Korea can the the whatever you think of of summit diplomacy and whatever you think of like what Trump is doing, the underlying reality is that North Korea ha- is as capable or more capable of striking the US with nukes as it was at the peak of the crisis. And so currently the situation is, structure of the situation is worse than it was before Trump came to office. And it's, as long as this like summit stuff keeps on going, it allows Kim Jong-un to never have to actually do real diplomacy because all he has to do is the fake summit diplomacy with Trump. And he never has to worry about, Pompeo or Steve Began, the North Korea special envoy, he never has to engage in technical discussions about verification, because Trump doesn't understand that stuff. And Trump's the only one that he's going to deal with. So Trump is being sort of played A little bit and it's happening at all of our expense and most of that doesn't end up in the book because of when it had to go to print but you started you started seeing signs of it even before the Singapore summit last year and so like I was trying to capture some of it but um, unfortunately you know circumstances have continued to evolve
0: we'll all have to stay tuned and and see how it develops Uh, we've taken up a lot of your time but before we let you go can you tell us what you're working on now
1: So interestingly, it's a compliment to the book. Um, I'm in post production on a documentary about how Trump and Kim blustered in toward nuclear war, basically. Uh, it's called the nuclear button and it'll probably, it'll probably be available in the next few months. It's probably going to be online. Um, I'm not really a filmmaker. This is my first time doing this, but, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting story an important story. And it, it kind of draws heavily from the same history that the book is, is about. So um, that will be coming soon.
0: Great. Well, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you. On the brink, Trump, Kim and the threat of nuclear war by Van Jackson is available now from Cambridge university press. Thank you for listening to new books in national security, a podcast channel on the new books network.